Welcome to 30 Minute Theology, a podcast where we discuss the basis of Catholic belief and practice. With me today is Brother Mark. Mark, how are you doing today? I am doing great, John. How are you doing? I'm great doing, to be here. Yeah, uh, I'm uh, a little bit under the weather, but happy to be here. Happy to have this conversation. Yeah. Today we are discussing the fall. And uh, you know, before this podcast, we always pray. Prayer is a good thing to do before anything important. And it occurred to me that if we do not see ourselves as sinners, mm. the prayer that Jesus gave us, the Our Father, <laughs> really makes no sense, uh, nor does the liturgical life and prayer of the church. So today we're going to discuss the fall. I can't, it was G.K. Chesterton, I believe, who said that the fall is the only empirically uh, demonstrated demonstrable uh, belief of Christianity, but strangely, it's come under large attack in recent times. So I want to just begin with the question, was there really a fall? Isn't the world just fine the way that it is? Wow, if anybody would even <laughs> ask that question and yeah. to assume that there isn't something broken or evil about humanity, that we're all just sort of fine the way we are, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, I think this is just common sense. Everyone right now in my circle is stressed out and concerned about the world. Yeah. And I think it's only fair that if we see a universal problem in the world, we include ourselves as part of that yeah. universal problem. Yeah. That does not mean that every person bears equal weight for everything occurring. That's not true. But if if there's a universal flaw with humanity, well... I'm a human, so it applies to me. And as I've been looking at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, they are particularly adamant that the fall is a universal experience. It exists at a level of universal facts. And they point out some uh, flaws that we can fall into when we deny the fall. So when the Church asserts that there's a fall, this is what I understand being asserted. Mark, chime in and correct me if I'm lacking anything. When we look at what's wrong with the world, we don't see it as a deficiency in God's creation. So last episode, well, last two episodes, Father Daniel and I spoke about cosmology, our understanding of um, the cosmos, both um, natural and supernatural, and that everything that God made, he looked at it, said it was good. And then we, in particular, looked at humanity, man and woman, who he created in his image. And God created man and woman good, not lacking, yep. not deficient. So we have this tension that the world we live in and the way I experience myself obviously is lacking, yep. lacking morally, um, lacking at times in meaning. Um, yep. But we don't say, well, God forgot something when he made the universe. We actually attribute that right. to an action of humanity. And last episode, we spoke about how man and woman serve as a bridge figure in creation. We are what Peter Kreeft calls the highest animal and the lowest angel because we are embodied spirits is one way to think about it. Another way is rational animals. Yep. Within our very ontologies, human beings, within our very makeup, 
as a body-soul composite, we connect the spiritual and the physical realm. And part of our vocation is actually to be a sort of representative of the natural realm, to be the priestly voice of the inarticulate worship of creation. So we're going to look at our first parents today, Adam and Eve, and what they did wrong. But I would first just like to remind us that because of the high dignity placed by God upon human beings, that our choices have strong consequences, not only for ourselves individually, not only for the rest of the human race, but actually for creation as a whole. Yeah. Well, and when you mention, uh, and you'll probably get to this a little bit later too, but original goodness, mm-hmm. uh, when we talk about the fall, uh, important to understand that when, when Genesis, when God pronounces the curse, or when he says, you know, the day you eat of it, something's going to happen, he doesn't just say you'll become sinners and I'm going to have to punish you for that. He says, and the day you eat of it, you will die. So to your point, humanity has a death problem. The problem is we're all broken, we're all dead. And I think sometimes when we, you mention the body-soul composite, like if we, if we go just a little bit farther, yes, we're body-soul, but body-soul, spirit, mind, will, and emotions, mm-hmm. all of those parts. And if all of that is broken and damaged, so sure, the body doesn't work, the soul is skewed, the spirit, mm-hmm. the mind, the will, the emotions, all our faculties... So I think you're right. It's very important to understand what actually happened to humanity ontologically, mean in our in our being, that w- what happened was a complete death problem. Mm-hmm. So when God steps in to fix the problem, it has to be more than just congratulations, your sins are forgiven, everybody can take a deep breath. Mm-hmm. He's got to fix us. That's right. So um, Mark, you set up, kind of what the problem is so let's let's look at what adam and eve did um first off the just in case people don't know the catholic church actually permits some uh ambiguity and divergence within our view of genesis one through three how science interacts um that there's no one established catholic position on the relationship right. between genesis one through three and science um, when Genesis 1 through 3 is described as mythic, uh, myth does not mean it didn't happen. <laughs> it meant that whatever happened is being communicated to us in the most clear language possible by God and also in very concise language. So when we deal with Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we're dealing with uh, really deep, really thick realities where every uh, sentence has a ton of significance. So just a reminder that Adam and Eve are the first man and woman created by God. Um, Eve is actually created from Adam, thus signifying uh, the unity that they share in their vocation and in their identity. And we talked a lot about the beauty of how the image of God consists not just in the fact that God made man and women, but man and woman together in their unity somehow reflect the likeness of God, his Trinitarian being. So Adam and Eve lived in the garden. They had this high vocation um, of, of a priestly and royal life. They have um, freedom as well to uh, have dominion in the garden, to serve it, to guard it. They have fellowship of one another with God, and they have one prohibition. And the prohibition 
is not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A lot of ink and a lot of thought has been spilled about why God planted the tree there, <laughs> why God gave a law. Um, and I think it's important to note that we think about that a certain way in our time because our culture tends to think of laws as arbitrary imposition mm. and not as laws of nature. So when we talk about the law of gravity, that's not uh, some sort of arbitrary imposition on my body that I need to be liberated from. That's simply the way the world works. So theologians have traditionally looked at this law from God as an expression of some deep, profound reality. And the most common explanation is this. Adam and Eve would mature to a place where we distinguish between good and evil, but the discernment of good and evil comes through obedience. So to just go eat a fruit off a tree without learning obedience and trust and submission is actually failing to attain at the virtue, attain to the virtue which the tree relates to. So, if Adam and Eve eventually want to be people capable of discerning good and evil, then they simply have to obey God, who has created them in paradise, <laughs> in a perfect relationship with Him and with one another and with creation. So, doesn't seem too hard. But to be fair to Adam and Eve, I'm the same way. <laughs> well, God. you think about, you know, so what would they have actually known at that point? You know, we, we have this... Um, we get a, maybe a little uh, skittish thinking, well, that there was some sort of development. Yeah. You know, they, they were born or they were created perfect and they knew everything and they were perfect. Like, well, no, to have to grow, to have to learn these things, to have to learn obedience by continually exercising their will and saying, okay, God has said this. I'm going to stay away from that. I'm, I'm going to continually not doing what he says or, or to, to, be, uh, to be obedient to that. But yeah, this idea that two perfect people had to grow, they had to develop. It's like, well, yeah, of course they had to. Yeah, St. Irenaeus and uh, Cardinal John Henry Newman, I don't know if he's directly quoting St. Irenaeus or just influenced by him, but they talk about how it's the glory of God not to change and the glory of man to change. Mm. That because we are uh, finite, embodied creatures, that our glory actually does consist in our development. Yep. And this is part of what distinguishes us from angels. Because yep. we get to the fall, we'll see there is zero mercy for the devil. And it's not, it's not because of the lack of mercy on God. It's because of the nature of what an angel is. That angels don't develop and they don't learn. They simply act and choose. Because as St. Aquinas teaches, they are pure intellect and will. Versus we as humans, we learn through our senses, which means that we do exist on a spectrum of development. Which, again, it goes back to my earlier point that it's important to see people not just as, okay, well, we're body and soul. We're body, soul, spirit, mind, will, and emotions. And mm -hmm. all of those aspects of who we are have to be raised from the dead, re regenerated, developed in order to be who we're, uh, we're intended to be. I call it the, the spectrum of capability and brokenness, mm -hmm. that after the fall, we're on this spectrum of... Some theologians would say, or some theological traditions would say, we're totally broken, nothing remains, there's absolutely nothing good about humanity in, our, um, uh, in the image of God, it's all gone. And then the other side, you had early Pelagians who said, actually, nothing Im impacted us. Uh, <laughs> yes. We're, 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 everybody is born into the 
condition that Adam and Eve were created. But somewhere in there, and that's why I actually like the Catholic tradition uh, and the Orthodox as well, that they, they're somewhere, they're, they're not as far to the level of brokenness. There's much more, a lot remained. We're, we're, we're not denying our brokenness. We're not denying our need for redemption and transformation. Correct. But there's, there's a lot of capability left in man. Uh, much of the image remains is what I'm saying. That's correct. I think that Pelagianism is probably the stupidest heresy of all, but it's also the one that for some reason we human beings fall back into uh, the quickest. And we'll actually see that a little bit here in this text. So I'm just going to read very quickly from this text because, I mean, I can't say it better than the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the animals that the Lord God had made. The serpent asked the woman... Did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? The woman answered the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, You shall not eat it or even touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die. No, God knows well that the moment you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, who know what is good and what is bad. The woman saw that the tree was good for food pleasing to the eyes, and desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. There is so much packed in there. Uh, the first thing we have to deal with is that um, the serpent wants chaos, which we have to ask the question, why? Well, uh, the serpent is identified later in Scripture as the devil, as Lucifer, uh, an angelic being from the highest rank of angelic beings uh, who intentionally rebelled against God, which is a bad idea. Sin's always a bad idea, though. <laughs> so why did Lucifer do that? Why did the serpent choose this path? We're not given complete insight into that, but... Wisdom says that it is through envy that the devil mm. fell. And most of the tradition has interpreted envy not as envy of God so much as envy of human beings. And which might sound weird because the serpent is a higher type of being than they are. But if we think about it a little bit, it actually makes sense. Because what is Adam and Eve's vocation as embodied spirits? Now, on the one hand, we human beings were angels, were created from the dust of the earth. But at the same time, God breathes his spirit into us and gives us a share in his own life. And many theologians believe that because of the angels' role in creation with God, that they are given an insight into man's destiny to participate in his own nature. Some even go so far to say that the were given an insight to anticipate the Theotokos, the Blessed Virgin Mary, who is a purely a creature. Okay, the, the Virgin Mary is is not a divine being. People right. think Catholics right. think that we don't. Yep. Mary is yep. just as human as me, but in fact, she's more human because of her sanctity and her unique role yeah. in salvation history. So many theologians believe that uh, the angelic beings having insight into man and woman's destiny to participate in the divine nature and specifically the virgin mary having a unique role in bearing god's son himself that that was simply insulting to the devil's pride 
and that he decided to play spoiler to God's plan for humanity. Anything you would like to add on uh, on the devil, Mark? Uh, I, I, I like your comment, though. Sin's never a good idea. Oh, goodness, no. <laughs> Which means I've had lots of bad ideas in my life. So what does he do? Uh, first off, he asks a question to Eve, and he intentionally poses it in a way that's not true factually. Did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? Well, of course not, but he's rhetorically right. brilliant because the way he puts the question, first off, makes God sound arbitrary and stingy, which is the exact opposite of God's interaction with Adam and Eve throughout this whole narrative. Right. But he's uh, inserted that. Second, look at Eve's response. She kind of gets it, but not totally. On the one hand, she defends God that, no, we can't eat of any fruit of the trees in the garden. But then she says that God said that they could not eat of it or even touch it lest they die, which is not true. God right. said, Adding lest that you... part about touching. Yeah, yeah. He, he said, if, if you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right. But he didn't say touching. Well, here's the problem. When she touches the fruit, whether it's an apple or whatever it is, and doesn't drop dead, she has mm. kind of put herself in a position now yeah. to be suspicious of the um, truthfulness of what God said. Once again, you said earlier, Mark, that God did not say, it's, this is worth pointing out, God did not say, the day you eat of the fruit, I will kill you. <laughs> he said, the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Yeah. So once again, this is not so much, death is not an arbitrary punishment for a violation of a law it's the natural consequence of the wrong choice Uh, and we think about what knowledge is peter crave says that when adam and eve knew one another the result was not a book but a baby Hmm. so (laughs) when the devil promises to adam and eve that they will be like god by knowing good and evil this is the thing that puzzles me they do know good Man. They know good experientially deep in their bones Man. because they live as good creatures in good unity with God, with themselves, and with creation. Man. To know evil in the Hebraic sense of the word is not to know it conceptually, Man. which I think they could probably conceptualize to some degree. It's to know it experientially. Man. Now, we post-fall. If we were given the opportunity, John, do you want to know good and evil or just good? I think if we really understand what that means, we would be insane to want to know good and evil right. because we're actually asking for an experience in it. it yes, Mark? Yeah, no, no, go ahead. And then just a couple of thoughts when you're done. Yeah, and I was just going to say as well, um, the serpent eventually <laughs> lashes out into just outright slander on the character of God. First off, he... He asserts God is a liar because he, cert- he says you certainly will not die. Second, he says, no, God knows well that the moment you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him and you will know what is good and what is bad. So here's the irony. God created Adam and Eve to be like him. And only God can give us the gift, give us the grace of participation in his own nature. Satan can't. It's not his gift to give. Satan accuses God 
of holding out on them and basically says the only way you're going to be like God is take the bull by the horns and forget him. Right. <laughs> Do it my way. <laughs> Which is actually, um, this is the universal temptation and all temptation to sin. Regardless of what our struggle is, whether it's pride or lust or fear, um, the implicit lie, which is like the fuel to the flame for every sin, is, well, I'll only get what God wants from me if I do it my own way. Man. Which is nonsense, but we're not any better than Adam and Eve. Man. We think it too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting when you mentioned St. Irenaeus earlier and this idea that Adam and Eve were to develop. Uh, as he talks about this, he says that the the temptation to Adam and Eve, some people think, what well, was it rebellion? Was it pride? Mm-hmm. Um, St. Irenaeus, Irenaeus said it was a lack of patience. Yes. That it was this, exactly what you were just saying, they want it now, when actually perhaps the plan was they learn this over time, they develop, they grow, they grow into who they were supposed to be. They weren't created perfect, perfect. There, there's a perfection in their goodness and in, in their initial creation, but they still had to grow into and they had to learn. So I think he's, he's actually onto something. And, and sure, of course, we can probably get from the text, there's some maybe some pride, maybe some arrogance. Um, but it's interesting to think about that if the primary fault was a lack of patience and not willing to submit to consistent obedience and learning and growing, um, that actually does make a lot of sense. Uh, and and to, you mentioned that kind of, you know, the lie was, well, you know, you'll be like God. God doesn't want you to be like him. But it's clear, as you pointed out, they already were to a degree. To the degree that God wanted them, they were in his image. They were in his likeness. And That's they were right. going to grow into perfection of that. So when Satan comes along and says, you know, he's holding back that part of you or the, you being that... Um, uh, it's just not true. They already were like God. But then one uh, one last thing, when he says, in the day you eat of it, you will die, there's an interesting construct in the Hebrew. It's called the infinitive absolute, if anybody's interested. Uh-huh. Uh, and it is it is the most emphatic way that a speaker or a writer can make a point. That's and, right. And I when he says, and the day you eat of it, you shall die period, end of discussion. It's God pounding his fist on the table. There will be no takebacks. Don't come back and say, oh, I'm really sorry. Can I have a second chance? Yeah. It's the infinitive absolute. It's the most absolute statement. God is so absolutely convinced. And so what they should have heard was, God's not playing around. Yeah. You do this, you will die. No takebacks and nothing I can do about it. Yeah. There should have been perhaps a healthier fear of the consequences of this. But like you said, we're all like that. There's so much in what you just said, uh, Mark, that I appreciate and agree with, but especially what you said from St. Irenaeus. I think that sometimes we want to inflate Adam and Eve sin to full-fledged cognizant rebellion, like giving the finger to God, storming the throne. And here's why I think that's a bad idea. Because we then accuse them of a sin that we don't think we ourselves do. So, on the one hand, Adam and Eve, they concretely, objectively did commit a mortal sin. True. They committed a sin which uh, killed the life of grace within them. They chose independence from God. And independence from God is spiritual death. 
Like yeah. this is the definition of hell is life apart from God. Um, now, of course, we cannot live entirely apart from God. God yeah. is still loves them. He still sustains us in our being. But to chart our own path like that is the path of death. And as soon as we've taken one step, we're dead. But it's so important to note that um, it's something far more subtle, which is simply, well, yeah, maybe God does want good for me, but I ultimately know how to achieve it more directly than he does, which we do all the time. I mean, I don't know how many times in a day I think, like, basically, God, you can get out of the garden. But I do think very often, God, I know how to get this yep. in a more direct way than you do, whether that's... Um, how to fulfill my vocation as a parent or a husband or yeah. as a minister in the church. And yeah. it's repeating Adam and Eve's yep. fatal flaw. Yeah. And the church describes this fatal flaw as original sin. <clears throat> so original sin is uh, quite literally the original sin, uh, the choice of Adam and Eve to live in independence from God to try the devil's great experiment. And because Adam and Eve are the parents of the human race, mm. original sin is a condition yep. which we are born in. Uh, so speaking of original sin, I think we described sin. Let's look at what is God's response to man's disobedience. Well, I think we go back to, it starts in Genesis 2.15, that... Um, 3.15? Uh, three, yeah. Uh, well, the the initial declaration of you will die, and then... Oh, that's I, right. Yeah. Uh, the natural consequences or the, the, the punishment for that, either way, um, that it's death, mm-hmm. and how serious that is. We are, we are not simply... Uh, criminals in need of reform mm. or forgiveness and reform we are corpses in need of resurrection yeah so as god steps into human history as god i don't want to say has to figure out i mean you know he knew all along but um it isn't just about trying to reform some criminals and help them to act better we are dead people we are a dead race that needs to be resurrected yeah and i think the first thing is well god takes the initiative yeah Adam and Eve hear God's footsteps coming for them, not yeah. as an angry father yeah. <laughs> about to mete out some hard justice, but as yeah. a curious. And he asks the question, Adam, where are you? Um, there's a lot of things Protestant theologian Karl Barth said that I don't like, but one thing he said that I really do like is he said that this question of God to Adam, Adam, where are you, is really the perennial question of God to man. Mm. That he's not asking Adam like literally like, where in the trees are you? As if God can't find Adam. Right. But he's asking Adam to reflect on where he is. Right. Not simply where his feet are standing, but where's his heart. Exactly. And that he, God is very gently um, nudging them towards just come out and say where you are. Yep. Come out and say what you need. It's Which, giving Adam, Adam and Eve a chance to come clean. Yeah. Which they don't. Yep. <laughs> they blame it on one another. And this is one of the reasons why the Catholic Church is so good to give us the sacrament of penance. Yeah. Because we sit in a confessional booth not to tell the priest uh, everything that everybody else did wrong, yeah. <laughs> but what we did yeah. wrong, just own it. 
which yeah. is what God's asking of Adam and Eve. And God is very patient with their nonsense, just as he is with ours. Uh, but then he pronounces some things. First off, he pronounces the natural consequences of what they've done. He pronounces disharmony now in the male-female relationship, that the male-female relationship, which was created to be like God, uh, created as very much part of the image of God and humanity, will now be typically marked by lust and domination yep. and envy rather than by unity and so on. And, you know, that explains a lot of society. It explains okay, yeah. why marriage is not only a sacrament, a gift, but also a vocation, yeah. something we have to work at, yeah. work out our salvation within. Yeah. Okay, because if you were to ask the question, okay, you know, how really do we see this played out? Uh, I think that's why Genesis 4 is so important, that you see every, uh, every human relationship has gone askew. So mm -hmm. you have brother who kills brother. You've got Lamech who takes two wives. Yeah. I mean, Ad Adam is probably still alive at this point. And so the, the injunction, the commandment, one man, one woman, you already have Lamech taking two wives. Uh, and then he's, he's the one wife, he, he says, you know, I'm really in trouble because I just killed a man for wounding me. So the neighbor relationship is completely destroyed. He yeah. got into a, a fight with some unknown guy and ended up killing him. The brother relationship, the marriage relationship, societal relationship... And you see it all just goes into the toilet from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Now, and society is advancing. They're creating instruments. They're technologically advancing. They know how to farm. So you have these advancements in society, but yet, you know, to your point, how man actually lives with one another has been destroyed. Every human relationship has been destroyed. Yeah. That's right. Um, and I think as we're saying that God does not allow creation to be cursed simply to make us miserable but romans 8 speaks about subjecting creation to fulfill it to futility in hope yeah. and that hope is that man will be through the brokenness of uh our our relationship to the environment the brokenness of our ecological status the brokenness of our mm -hmm. social status the brokenness mm -hmm. of our spiritual status that these would not be causes for despair but they would yeah. actually be signposts of the need for restoration. And I would like to end this episode with uh, what the restoration is that God promises. And ironically enough, uh, the restoration God proclaims is uh, proclaimed to the serpent who he is angry with. Because you have done this, you, the serpent, shall be banned from all the animals and from all the wild creatures. On your belly shall you crawl. In dirt shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike at your head while you strike at his heel. And that's the gospel. Brother Mark, will you close by saying why uh, verse 15 is, is central to the gospel, to God's plan of restoring humanity and through restoring humanity, restoring creation as a whole? Uh, yeah, I think as we look at Genesis, if we, if we summarize the gospel, how can we say, what, what's a good summary of the gospel? And I think we want to be careful to it as much as we can, if it's a summary, to embody. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, this is what I, I like to challenge my students with. Uh, if you pick a verse mm -hmm. to summarize the gospel, it has to include, well, what is the problem and how does God fix it? Mm -hmm. If our only problem is you're a sinner, 
you've got these think crimes that you've committed and you're you just need to be forgiven so that you can one day go to heaven mm-hmm. um okay fine there's an aspect of it but what about if the gospel is the story of how god is fixing what happened in the garden meaning the problem is a death problem mm-hmm. and so what was broken and lost in this beautiful perfect garden what was destroyed is uh, is one back in mm-hmm. this eternal beautiful city and so you you have the garden magnified in in grandeur and glory and stuff we can't even imagine how awesome it's going to be then the story of from the garden to the city is the story of how God is rebeautifying the world. Mm-hmm. So the gospel is about how God is rebeautifying the world. And you mentioned Romans, Romans 8. Uh, he's restoring the whole cosmos. He's going right. to remake the world. Uh, and so maybe a better summary of the gospel might be Ephesians 2, where the problem was death, we go to life. Mm-hmm. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Uh, if anyone is in Christ... Uh, he or she is a new creature. The old has passed, and all things have become new. Yep. Or Romans 8, we're being transformed into the image of Christ. These are the, the the passages that I like to start with. When somebody asks me, okay, we'll explain the gospel shortly, succinctly. It's really about how God's rebeautifying the world. And uh, just a quick story, I know we're running out of time, but um, my brother and I, we used to break things, and of course my father would, would punish us. Uh-huh. But he also fixed the things we broke. That's right. And it's not just about, I think sometimes we have this limited understanding of redemption or salvation where God's just going to forgive us. Yeah. Forget about the world. Forget about the cosmos. No, he's actually going to fix everything that broke, which means he's going to renew creation. That's right. And so he's going to fix us to the point that we can live in this new creation. That's right. Um, It's been spoken earlier and it'll be said, I hope many more times on this podcast that God's legal relationship to creation is a subset of his paternal exactly. creation yep. to his, his paternal relationship to creation that yep. ultimately um, we confess in the creed we believe in God the Father Almighty yep. and um, that his relationship to creation is paternal. So you're talking about your dad fixing it. Um, that's totally right. Yeah, so through the fall, um, man, both male and female, we have inherited uh, spiritual and physical death but spiritual and physical death, spiritual disharmony, social disharmony, ecological disharmony yep. are not actually natural to man. Although they are normative to us, from God's yep. perspective, they're not natural. And as we progress throughout this podcast, we will see what is God's solution to restoring yep. man to uh, what's natural. Because what's natural to Adam and Eve in God's economy is actually to be made supernatural, to be elevated yep. into the divine life. And uh, that includes every one of those dimensions that you brought up. Well, I want to know if this is a topic that we could say so much more, but I hope that this is a good starting point for our listeners. Uh, Mark, are there any uh, resources that you would recommend? you got to go back to the Fathers. St. Yeah. Irenaeus, uh, his understanding of recapitulation atonement theory, um, and of course, St. Thomas. I, I think for this, um, yeah, part of understanding of the fall also has to, like you said, it, it goes with what did God do to fix the problem? Mm-hmm. So St. Augustine's understanding of salvation, the early fathers, so you, you've mentioned deification, theosis, stuff that kind of makes us as Western scientific people go, eh, becoming like God, that sounds kind of weird. Uh-huh. But when we look back at the historic church and some of the 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 
various aspects of the diamond that is salvation that they look at. Um, I think it's just a rich wealth of various aspects of what actually happened to us and what did God do to fix the problem. So uh, what you said made me think of two uh, written works, one by a church father, and it's both short and an easy read. And I think very poetic and beautiful. Uh, On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius. Absolutely. If you get the printing by St. Vladimir's Press, it also has a preface written by C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis wrote this preface like 1,800 years after it was written. But the preface is awesome, almost as good as the book. Uh, The second thing I think of is... um, Gaudium et Spes, yes. which is a document of uh, the Catholic Church's Ecumenical Council, Vatican II, which took place in the mm-hmm. 60s, um, which literally means hope and joy. Yeah. And it's all about man's need for hope and joy and uh, God's declaration of it. Well, Brother Mark, I have uh, really enjoyed this episode, and I hope that our listeners will dig deep with it. <laughs>